Hello, uh, welcome to the Dan on Omar show, uh, 24th of, uh, of November, and uh, we're back into club football, which is, uh, which is good to see after uh, a couple of international weeks, which I think we both admitted we didn't really kind of spend a lot of time watching football, but I think there's a fair, fair bit more to watch over the weekend and some, some good games um, too. Uh, so we were obviously chatting in, in the week around what we could discuss this week, and the obvious, uh, one of the big news was um, Pep Guardiola getting a uh, a contract extension obviously ahead of uh, the Spurs game which is I think good news for most uh, City fans I think obviously he's done an amazing job there um, but we thought we'd use it as an opportunity as a bit of a kind of peg to chat about about head coaches and I think we'll use the the half hour to obviously take any questions that anyone has but also just walk through their the head coach hire journey because Dan you're obviously involved from a kind of contractual legal side with head coaches of which there's a lot to cover and we tend to be involved on the kind of surveillance and hiring side of um, of things. So I think uh, between us, hopefully we've got a few a few bases covered. Um, let, let's go from the start. So you're a club. Uh, it's reached probably reaching that time of the season where you're getting a bit iffy about about your head coach and you're thinking about changing them. Um, what what are some of the kind of contractual hurdles, legal hurdles that that club has to think about when they're when they're about to go through that process? Well, it's almost, I think, a little bit, um, uh, if we can even go a bit further back, because what, what tends to happen sometimes on some managerial deals is the contracts can get signed pretty quickly um, without actually thinking about the worst case scenario, which tends to happen, which is at some point, and it's happened sooner rather than later, a lot of the time, is um, just like the sun sets and the sun rises, um, managers are appointed and then they are sacked within a particular period of time, fortunately, unfortunately, um, which means, um, you, you know, usually whenever I'm doing any type of contract, if it's an employment contract or a commercial agreement, what I tend to almost consider first is what is the worst that can happen and then how do you work backwards? Um, and now it sounds a little bit, um, um, <laughs> sounds a little bit, um, generally um, like the wrong way of looking at it but actually really what you also need to be doing is thinking about mitigating your client's risk exposure that's the you know the legal way of thinking about it and, and usually the ways that you'll go about thinking about that in terms of KPIs and performance indicators as to compensation should the worst happen and for example a client or, a, or in terms of club want to potentially fire their manager now um, I think it was, I know it's public record um, from a few years ago now when David Moyes was at Manchester United, not not for a, a you know, particularly long period of time before he was effectively sacked. Um, and he had, a, he had a really long-term deal. I think it was over five years, really. But what Manchester United had future-proofed into their um, contract with Moyes was even though it was a very long deal and it was on the, the, the total value of the contract was significant, that there were particular KPIs involved in that agreement so that if, for example, certain minimum KPIs like um, not qualifying for the Champions League, um, which he, I believe, well, I don't believe he didn't do in that first year, then there was a set amount which Manchester United could effectively terminate um, the, the employment agreement for, which they ultimately did. So um, usually one of the main questions or main thoughts in a club's mind early on will be, what happens if worst happens? How much will we have to pay out? How much will we have to effectively um, be on the hook for? The other element that can sometimes occur is, um, you know, whether a club um, won't necessarily be paying lump sums 
out to a manager when they sack him or her, but actually effectively keep them on the, um, the, 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 the payroll to a degree. And there's been reports of managers or ex-managers still being paid monthly amounts for a number of years afterwards. Now, there's certainly a query there about whether um, one club can still be paying a manager years after um, and then possibly that manager playing against that club um, okay. for a particular period of time. Query whether that's occurred or otherwise. But anyway, so um, usually it's always around termination. There's the usual stuff also around bonus provisions for winning cups, qualifying for Champions League or avoiding relegation or being promoted and, and the things that go with it, along with, in some instances, like um, we've talked about at different times, you know, there's release clauses for players. There can be release clauses um, for managers too. So um, that's always something to, to to look out for in those type of deals. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things I've I've noticed recently, and you've probably seen as well, is, is clubs are getting more and more sophisticated about some of those types of uh, types of clauses. They, as you say, are preparing for the worst, and I think we are seeing more and more. Um, I guess smarter decisions coming into uh, the way that coaches are um, hired and fired, and, and particularly as it comes to, to firing, um, there's more and more uh, analysis of things like expected goals data to understand has the head coach been lucky or unlucky. Um, to the extent that we've been working with clubs where they've decided not to sack a head coach, partly because they could see that the team was performing okay, even if they weren't getting the results, but they had the data, the XG data to say, actually this team, our, our team's not doing as, as badly as what the results suggest and, and results should turn because, you know, yes, there are provisions within contracts, but ultimately clubs still have to pay quite big, um, quite big uh, kind of uh, termination clauses in contracts. I mean, there's Chelsea's have, have been well publicized in, in their financial accounts. So they have to get smarter about these types of decisions nowadays. Can I ask one question as well, Omar, on that side? Because it's been sort of well documented that there's a number of, you know, data-driven clubs that do an excellent job, a number, obviously, that you work with as well. And without obviously going into particular details, the things that I've read over the years are, for example, you know, particular clubs will model um, what the actual league should look like, bearing in mind XG or other types of performance-related barometers, especially in low-scoring games like football, to understand whether the underlying performance of a team is aligned with their actual performance over a particular period of time. So I remember there was a story a while back as to FSG explaining that Klopp was um, effectively hired, among other things, even though he had a very poor first half of his one of his last seasons in charge of Dortmund. But actually, his underlying performance matrix matrices were actually very high, regardless of the position that Dortmund found themselves in in the short term. So I'd just be interested to hear how, how that works in practice when you're mm -hmm. actually speaking with clients about that underlying performance as opposed to what the table actually says. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that Dortmund example is probably one of the best case studies you can find about a team being unlucky. So early February in the 2014-15 season, Dortmund were bottom of the league, which was just unthinkable because, what, 18 months earlier, they were in a Champions League final. Um, and But one of the things that you would see in the underlying data is that they were constantly creating high-quality chances. And they actually weren't conceding very high-quality chances. Um, and they were just, as you say, it's a low-scoring sport. Just they were constantly flipping tails, basically. Um, and that, that can happen. It's going to happen to someone somewhere. 
So they're bottom of the league, but their underlying metrics suggest that they were the fourth best team in the league. Second half of the season, they actually had, I think, the second best record in the league um, and, and finished seventh. So from from you know being bottom of the league to finishing seventh is obviously quite a good turnaround. Uh, but clearly that had taken a lot out of Klopp and, and ultimately led to his resignation. Um, but clubs, you know, Dortmund were a special case. They were never going to sack uh, Klopp. But a lot, pretty much any other club that you can think of in that position would have sat the head coach brought in another coach, seen the improvements and go, oh, the head, new head coach has made a big effect. Whereas actually the previous head coach might have turned it around anyway. And there's other examples that come to mind. I mean, I think of uh, Newcastle at the start of, might have been the same season, 14, 15 season, where Alan Pardew was without a win or, or one win in seven, something like that. I remember Sean Ingle wrote a, a column in The Guardian at the time saying, actually, the team's not performing that that badly. But things will turn around. I think Newcastle went on a kind of five or six game winning streak off the back of it. Um, and and they didn't change again. They didn't change their head coach, which is the key thing. And so that's in statistics known as regression to the mean, and happens all the time um, with head coaches. And and that absolutely is a is a consideration now. And I think I think a lot of clubs they're, they're not necessarily wedded to the data, but they try and get a perspective on you know how good is our team really? Because if we are going to spend you know hundreds of thousands, millions potentially on on sacking a coach, we don't want it to be. Um, just to have an effect that we would have had anyway. No, I think that's totally right. And and if and that sort of neatly leads on, I know, to a lot of the research generally that you've done and I've I've read, which has been f- fantastically Im- important actually, but um, uh, interesting as well as to sort of the value that you can actually attribute to um, you know elite coaches performing at the at the top level. Um, and some of the statistics supposed was the, in the case, at least of what he wrote in, in um, my book, Done Deal, which I was really appreciative of is, you know, top players can um, potentially be the difference of four to five points in a particular season over a long season. And without giving away too much about what you're going to necessarily say afterwards, sometimes managers can can impact the impact can be double for for some of those managers so it would just be really interesting to hear that methodology and i guess two things one is that actually the case that managers can make such a significant difference and if that is the case you know a lot of recruitment um um time and resource goes into looking for the best possible players for particular positions do you still feel that is something that clubs don't do as well or some clubs do a lot better than others yeah so i think um i think liverpool are a really interesting case study at the moment actually because van dyke got injured so arguably liverpool's best player most important player got injured um you know everyone talks about liverpool's title hopes are potentially over um but they're actually since since the injury i don't think they've lost in the league maybe dropped a couple of points uh, obviously top of the league favorites of the league now having not been certainly not been after that injury and why is that? Well, that's probably because they've got an amazing head coach um, who is just phenomenal at getting the best out of um, out of his players. So even though Van Dyke, yes, uh, I think when, when he was injured, we projected the team to kind of dip by three or four points over the rest of the season. To a degree, that's compensated by the fact that they've got a head coach who can bring in players into new positions or young players and so on that that, that can improve the team. And so the way that our, our modelling and analysis works is that with head coaches, what we've historically done, because it'd be quite hard to tease apart what's the coach and what's the players. If you look at the kind of short-term impact of coaches where they don't have uh, a transfer window to change the team and, and can't overhaul the squad to their 
they're making. Um, what you can do is you can you can look at the kind of short-term improvement in underlying performance. And, and historically, the top coaches have, have kind of improved the team by in the region of kind of 10 points per season over, over a short period of time. The challenge is a lot of clubs don't know who those top head coaches are um, that are going to improve their team because whilst Klopp is a perfect fit for Liverpool, he might not actually be a perfect fit at, I don't know, another club, a, a Leicester or whoever, um, because the players aren't right, the culture isn't right, you know, the, the philosophy of the, the club isn't right, whatever it is. Um, so often uh, it's it's not a stab in the dark, but you, you're kind of guessing a little bit with a head coach as to what impact they're really going to have at the team. Whereas with a player, you can you generally have more of a clear-cut idea because you've got such a big sample size of being able to watch them each week. All their key work is done you know, on the pitch in front of you. With a head coach, 90% of what they do is you know, on the training ground um, is, is not necessarily that visible. And therefore, you you can never quite be certain. It's like hiring in any other industry. You can never quite be certain uh, of the impact that they'll have. So, and as it relates to your second question on, you know, do clubs spend enough time on it? I think more and more are. So we, we have more and more conversations uh, on this with, with clubs. We actually work with um, a, a business called e, um, EPP, um, who are very much involved in kind of executive search, um, not just on key performance positions within clubs, but also on on head coaches with us. And and uh, between the two of us, we kind of cover off that area of, of surveillance. So understanding who are the head coaches out there that are um, that are the right fit for a club based on their needs, their playing style, you know, bringing young players through, they're performing well, you know, perform on a budget, whatever it is. And then also the kind of profiling piece, which um, which they do very well, uh, understanding you know, the kind of fit and their, 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 the way that they interact with players and all this kind of stuff. That's obviously super important as, as coaches. So more and more clubs are thinking that way. We've been involved in, in processes that, that do that. Um, but it's still, if you think about the resource that's dedicated towards players and recruiting players and 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 the, the size of departments that are dedicated towards that it still pales in comparison to, to head coach recruitment and i can just ask one other sort of iteration of that as well because i think for example i know i don't want to disproportionately spend too much time on liverpool liverpool fans as we are um the interesting thing that i sometimes find from guys like neville and carragher is they i think carragher especially talks about how um klopp sometimes doesn't get enough recognition for you know his his coaching ability, the, the ability to be able to coach players to become better, and that. Um, but at the same time, I wonder, and maybe this is a slightly wider point, which is, you know, the evolving role of a manager. Like, how much in in a statistical model can you attribute to a coach coaching the players better, mixed with the talent ID and transfer strategy actually going well. So, for example, Liverpool Transfer Committee, or whatever you want to call them, um, mixed with Klopp's obviously fantastic tactical acumen um, over a particular period of time. You know, part of those points tallies, I guess, must be a combination of coaching better and buying better and, and, uh, you know, disassociating one with the other must be actually a tricky task. It's really hard, yeah. I think I think the ideal case study you pick Klopp up, you maybe put him at Sunderland or, or a club like that, where you know transfer and recruitment has been a bit more chaotic over over the last few years, and you get a sense of like the, the true impact, I guess. It, look, it's really hard. I think 
one of the things that we can do through modeling is see, okay, to what extent has the wage bill increase? So if you're, I don't know, if you were, you know, Mark Hughes at, at Man City, for example, the team improved substantially under Mark Hughes, but Man City invested a lot of money there. And actually, if you look at the rate of improvement, it was pretty much in line with what you might have expected of a team that, that invested that amount of money. So you don't, you go, okay, well, probably wasn't uh, Mark Hughes making as big of an impact as, as the kind of spend. Um, so there are things you can do, but it's it's not perfect. And the, and the trouble with head coaches is that, you know, you only got two or three, 10 years to an, analyze for, for a lot of them. A lot of them, you know, sometimes none or, or just one. And so teasing it as part, part is difficult, but that's where good interview questions come in. Uh, and that's why it's so important to have a good interview process because you uh, you need to be able to, you know, really understand to, if the team had improved under that previous coach, you know, try and ask what what actually did they do? What what was the key differences that they made? Because if it's if they can't necessarily articulate it, then you might go, okay, well, perhaps with other people within the team, or it might have been um, you know, the the recruitment department or youth development or what whatever it is that, that drives that efficiency. It's a really good one. And and I hope you don't mind if I'm just gonna ask uh Olivier's asked a really good question mm -hmm. from YouTube and just to you know, everyone that's watching or streaming generally, feel free to get the questions in. But Olivia's asked a really good one, and I think it's certainly something for Omar, Omar to answer rather than me. His question is, um, I feel like a lot of teams hire a manager that was sacked before but is famous in the relative market. Query how, you know, that, that is the case or not. But how can we find undervalued managers through scouting like we would do for players? You probably already touched on that to a degree is the truth. But I'm sure at some point there are depending on the exactly as you said the characteristics and capabilities and you know squad size and developmental needs um uh, outliers in the the managerial um uh you know environment generally and i guess it leads on to one of your other points isn't it where you talk about the relative strength of leagues mixed with the relative strength of a team mixed with the, the talent and under and overachievement of a um, of a potential manager sorry I'm, I'm not sure i've given away the answer just then no 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 I think it's, it's a good uh good summary it is a complex problem i think um so I, I would agree i think there are a lot of um coaches that are hired on on reputations uh, in the market or based on based on one historical job or one trait that, that perhaps they're, they're famous for um the, the undervalued coach pieces is difficult to answer i think um i think looking in other markets is is often a good first step um you know i often think um i forget his name the, the there was a coach who who took um paderborn from the third tier in germany to, to the um top division they got relegated last year but still a, a, an incredible achievement kind of the equivalent of what eddie howe achieved right at, at bournemouth now eddie howe you know deservedly rightly in demand by by clubs in the premier league or in england for what he's achieved but he's going to command a much higher salary than i think it's baumgartner at, at paderborn who's achieved okay not to the same degree but very impressive things as well on a very small budget and that's that's a type of um it, it often feels like a risk as a club because you're you're asking a, a manager to come into an environment that's new a country that's new and so on but actually if you look at the evidence coaches who have experience in that league don't perform any better than, than coaches that don't have experience in that league and um, so it's if you talk about undervalued or overvalued things one of the overvalued things is experience within a league um, and you will pay you will overpay um, for it in terms of in terms of salary uh, one of the things i want to ask you dan was um 
you know, we, we're talking about hiring coaches and a lot of the time we're talking about hiring coaches that were unemployed um, because just like any other uh, signing a footballer who's a free agent comes with no kind of additional costs. What, what, what does a transfer market for coaches look like? How does that, how does that work? Well, it's it's an interesting one, and I think it's something that's probably got a bit more nuanced over the last few years. We we, we talked very briefly at the beginning about release clauses, for example, and and there have been a number of occasions where you know um, managers are in demand um, whilst they are in a job, um, thinking about um, Silver at Watford um, when Everton wanted him, um, they couldn't agree um, a release amount. Six months later, Watford sack him, um, and then he turns up at Everton a little bit of time afterwards. After Allardyce, maybe I think it might have been, or otherwise. So that that was an odd one in itself, but um, it, it sort of um, it illustrates the 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 issue, which is you know if there are release clauses for players, and some of those players maybe will likely be more valuable in terms of the compensation that. Um, one club will have to pay the other to effectively agree to terminate the contract. The same is certainly due, and um, same is certainly the case with managers. That the slight um, wrinkle and complication a lot of the time um, can be, however, because usually you know a manager doesn't go by himself or herself to a particular club. He go, goes with um, a whole set of backroom stuff. Um, sometimes it can be as small as two or three. Sometimes I've seen can be as big as ten to fifteen people. Um, which covers everything from first team to youth to technical to scouting and data analytics and everything else alongside. So, you know, sometimes when a club is looking to hire a particular manager, the outlay for the manager um, certainly doesn't cover what might be the holistic costs for taking effectively a small department to that club. Now, and there's obviously cost implications for that as well. The flip side of that, when we talked about termination rights and such previously, was that if that is the case and managers are bringing with them larger teams, then the issue of upping and moving, um, if that manager wants to leave, along with the rest of their backroom staff, becomes more difficult because there can be gardening leave, other types of restrictive provisions in those employment contracts, which might actually mean that if a manager wants to leave, um, it might be more difficult for him or her to take that those staff members with them to that new club. So, you know, in a time when things are becoming, um, you know, even greater in terms of the, the value that can be attached to managers, especially perhaps, you know, when the club hasn't started well in the season. I'm just thinking Roy Hodgson, for example, you know, before he took over at Palace and has, you know, more or less steadied the ship to... You know, for Palace are a you know well-drilled mid-table looking you know aspirationally up, whereas previously for a little bit of time under De Boer and others they were you know looking um, you know on course for um, relegation. So what I mean is sometimes you know the the um, opportunity cost and the value of getting the right manager in for the short term and long term, um, it's it's hugely important to be able to work out and identify. The, the manager, the managerial team behind them. And, and after that, really, just to strategically plan whether it's a one-man band or if it's a 15-man band. Yeah, it's the, the backroom staff dynamics really interesting because I think more and more clubs are trying to pin coaches down to say you can only bring in you know one or two individuals. Um, but but it is hard. Like if you, if you want a really top coach, um, then sometimes they, they've got the negotiating power, not the club. 
Um, and there's also the dynamics of, you know, when if a head coach deserves a, a pay rise, you know, he's often going to back his his staff as well to um, to get a pay rise and, and kind of make sure all the contracts are kind of proper and reflect the value that they're adding to the club. So it, it's not like negotiating with with one player. It's it's often a kind of um, uh, almost like a chess chess match, I guess, to, to to coordinate all the all the contracts. And on on the release clauses, um, it's interesting that there is actually a Wikipedia page for like highest transfer fees paid for head coaches, and it's kind you're of doing your research. Yeah, well, it's 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 surprisingly modest. You know the the values that you see on it. What's it, the record? I forget. It's something like um, maybe fifteen million, maybe a bit more. Um, but I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up and share it afterwards. But it's um, yeah, always go for quite a lot. If I remember, I think it might have been him. Yeah, um, and. It's, you know, if you compare that to, you know, Neymar or Jao Felix or whoever it was, you know, it's, it's incredibly modest fees. It's kind of feels like 90s football or something, you know, uh, um, the, the values that we're talking about. Um, but, but, you know, the vast majority, it's, it seems like in no other industry where your first choice for hiring someone would be someone who just got sacked from their previous role. You know, you would always go out and, and poach if you're looking for top candidates and, and that's you know that, that's the kind of world of, of head coaches but i do think more and more clubs are going to be thinking about um you know is that release clause worth it um, and we have seen evidence actually that coaches who are poached actually stay in a role for a longer period of time which makes sense because they're you know potentially of higher quality yes there might be a bit of some sunk cost bias because if you are paying a release clause you probably want to give it a bit longer um but yeah it's it's um it's an interesting, interesting trend. I think um, you know there, there's probably a number of coaches in the Premier League at the moment. You know, if you think of people like Ralph Hasenhüttl or Brendan Rodgers, you know th these are really upwardly mobile coaches, um, but they're doing such a great job with their current clubs. It's very difficult to imagine them going in the short term. So you know, clubs are probably going to have to pay release clauses for for those types of coaches. Just ask one quick question that just sprung to mind, Omar. Maybe we can do this for another session if we, if you don't know offhand, although I expect you to know everything offhand as much as possible. Um, is wh where are we generally in terms of um, uh, uh, Premier League sackings as per a normal mm. season? Because it, it feels like sometimes we're, we're almost in December. Um, we're getting towards transfer window, I guess, where actually managers can um you know make transactional changes mm. um but it, it feels like we haven't really had that many sackings just generally just as a feeling as, as things go um is that is that relative to anything particular or to this being a quite an odd covid season i think there's a bit of an odd covid season i also i remember looking at some figures this would have been about uh probably about nine months ago actually um and the head coach's tenures had lengthened a little bit over over the previous 12 months. Uh, so if you looked at the kind of coaches that were fired, um, typically they'd been in a job, you know, close to 18 months, whereas it was drifting towards 12 months in, in the Premier League Championship. Um, so I think there is a bit more patience. I think that's partly a reflection of kind of better um, recruitment processes. It's not just kind of um, random hires um, as, as we've probably seen in, in the past. Um, but I also think um, I, I was look, I, I was thinking this as well before before our chat, and I was trying to see what game week. So we're in game week ten now, I suppose, of going into game week ten. Um, last season, Watford fired their head coach after just four matches, 
uh, the previous season before that, Fulham fired theirs after 12. Uh, and I think generally it's before 12. Um, but I think we're seeing more and more um, yeah, head coaches lasting into you know a quarter of the season, which which is kind of fair a fair bit of patience, I suppose. Because if you look at you look at some of the clubs at the bottom, you know nine games can feel like quite a long time for some of them, but they haven't got what, uh, many or any wins. Yeah, very cool. Well, I think we're we're basically on a half an hour before we can go and watch some Champions League football. Yeah, very good. And it's a bake-off finale tonight as well, so it's gonna be it's gonna be two screens. Oh well, I, yeah. Well, I've got. To, I'm going to try and do a little bit more work, and then uh, yeah, try and get to watch a bit of it. I think as well. Good stuff. All right. Thanks. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing everybody next week. So, well, for, just lastly, I think yeah, if anyone has any particular topics as usual, then you know, feel free. We'll, we'll post this video on Twitter and across our various channels. But any particular topics, feel free to let us know. Looking forward to hearing anyone's thoughts. We'll post obviously on. Um, the the weekly podcast and you can catch this on um, YouTube as well so um, thanks for thanks for joining us and see everybody this time next week thanks everyone thanks for listening you can follow me on Twitter TikTok and Instagram at Football Law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast like share and tag me if you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.